Welcome to Investing After Hours. I'm your host, Allie Perry. Um, with me today is our microcap expert, Alex Koifman. How are you, Alex? Good, Allie. Nice to be here. Okay. So when you and I were talking about what we wanted to talk about today, you said both microcap stocks for technology and microcap stocks for biotech. Right. Now, those are two different things, but I know maybe we can kind of lump them into the same funnel when we're talking about microcap stocks. And one of the first things that I wanted to clarify is what a microcap stock is and how you got into investing into them. Okay, so um, that's a good question, um, and it's a broad question. Uh, microcap stocks, which are colloquially known as penny stocks, and that's a nickname I tend to not prefer, although um, I'm kind of sort of bound to live by it, um, they're determined by the market capitalization of the company. And generally speaking, by modern standards, anything with a market capitalization of $100 million or less qualifies as a, a microcap company or a penny stock, if you want. And so um, it doesn't matter if the stock is trading for $10. It doesn't matter if the stock is trading for one penny. They're all technically part of that, um, of that sector, so to speak. And uh, a lot of the time, the term penny stock gets sort of um, worked into the mix, and it, it b tends to build a lot of resistance, I believe, with investors, just because there's this inherent belief that they're unstable, that uh, these aren't real companies, that they're not going anywhere. But in reality, what it is, is it's an early stage company, generally speaking, and there's a lot of growth. The reason that I got involved with this stuff is because these are early stage companies that have a lot of their development still ahead of them. It's the best time to invest. There is a lot of inherent risk with this, of course. Uh, you know, you're not investing in a blue chip that's definitely going to, at the very least, retain its value, if not grow. You're investing in a company that's still testing out its business model, testing out products, technologies, things like that. And if it works, uh, the rewards are incredible. If it doesn't work and you have to be ready for that, then, um, you know, the potential outcome could be a loss. So, in your experience, though, do you feel like it is worth that risk? Like you're looking at companies <clears throat> where you're putting in minimal capital um, to have a stake in something that eventually could take off. So, how do you diversify that portfolio? Um, do I think it's worth the risk? I absolutely do because I, I consider my own personal style of investing to be very, very venture capitalist-like. I'm not interested in making money off dividends. I'm not interested in incremental growth or, uh, you know, uh, making a couple percent here, a couple percent there. I want to actually be involved in the cultivation and the development of new t companies, new technologies, new processes, new services, that kind of thing. With that, there's always inherent risk because you don't know what's going to work. You don't know what isn't going to work. Um, you know, there are people worth billions of dollars today that wouldn't have invested more than a couple of tens of thousands in Facebook before uh, that company started to take off. And what did they get in the end result? Uh, they got a lot of profit and they also got to take part in a paradigm shifting uh, new enterprise. So <clears throat> you do have to balance uh, that risk as far as diversifying to, uh, 
you know, hedge against losses. I'm not so huge into diversification myself. I I keep some wealth in real estate. Uh, I keep some wealth in hard assets like, uh, you know, gold and silver and stuff like that. But uh, what I'm interested in and, you know, what, what helps me get up in the morning is the prospect of, of cultivating new businesses and new companies. And that kind of brings us back around to biotech, which um, <coughs> I know we both come from medical backgrounds, not as strictly, but with family that goes back into the medical fields. Sure. Um, is there a reason that biotechs are kind of a lucrative penny stock, or is it just that like connection to starting new businesses that you have? So biotech, um, I've always, I've always kind of. Uh, separated biotech out into its own category and I've always had my own attitude towards it. I do come from a family of doctors and uh, my dad uh, being the main one, uh, he was always interested in the latest innovations, he was always interested in the latest technologies, he even tried a couple times to develop his own new things. Um, It's kind of near and dear to me and of course the market for this stuff is huge because just generally the medical industry is enormous it's one of uh, the biggest uh, line items that we have in terms of national agenda and you know we have a we have an aging population so that that creates a lot of need especially when it comes to end-of-life care and age-related neuropathological degenerative diseases all of that stuff is very much a catalyst for the biotech industry my reservations with biotech um, you called it a lucrative a lucrative sector. Um, it can be for sure. There are a couple of hurdles that investors need to um, need to mind, and one of the main ones, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, is the whole FDA approval process. And what that basically does is it creates hurdles uh, at several different levels because the FDA approval process comes in stages. There are clinical trials. It, uh, it's also very dependent on how invasive uh, the new process or technology is to the human body. If it's something that you just, you know, kind of stick stick on your arm and it does whatever it's going to do, that's a, the the burden of, of proof, so to speak, for that as opposed to something that you put into the body as an implant or a pill are completely different. And it can take years, even decades, for a company to gain FDA approval for uh, widespread commercialization. That doesn't mean that the stock is bad. It doesn't mean the investment is bad or that the idea is bad. It means that there is the added element of risk from the time factor. And, you know, there are ways around that, too. Uh, These young companies, they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. There are exit strategies for these companies, even if they don't even foresee themselves going through the entire FDA approval process. However, uh, as I've learned, uh, most people who like microcaps don't like to wait very long. So... Um, these are just things that you know you want to consider when you're building your portfolio. So I'm going to stop you. I have one more question that I'm thinking before we get to FDA approval and we start to talk about you know, what you look for in a biotech company <coughs> before you say, hey, that's a good idea, I'm going to buy into that. But kind of just going back to penny stocks, um, you just said that most people investing in penny stocks are interested in like short-term, make-it-rich um, sure. kind of gains. Yeah. Is, you don't aim for that in your portfolio, do you? Are you, are you looking at long-term stability or are you looking at to kind of have a little bit... Um, okay, so that's an interesting question. Um, I don't look for long-term stability because that's just not something that if you want long-term stability, you go to blue chip companies. That's that's how you do it. Um, am I looking for a fast in, fast out type scenario? Uh, sure, I'll take it. Uh, that's not really that's not really the holy grail of of this type of investing. The holy grail of this type of of investing is to get in 
at a bargain, first of all, find a low point. And because these stocks are so thinly traded, low points come kind of often. Uh, you know, stocks, they, they, they tend to dip after spiking. So you know where the low points are. What you're waiting for is you're waiting for a liquidity moment when something big happens. Uh, it's usually a big headline. It's a big milestone for the company. And it might not be the end-all, be-all. This might not be a buyout by Google or something like that where you're going to make 1,000%. But it's a liquidity moment when you can make substantial gains on a quick trade. There is volume to trade into. And uh, the news itself is substantive. That's important. It can't just be some piece of fluff. And we deal with that all the time in this industry. So what do I look for? Um, it's different for every company. But let's just put it this way. You, you know it when you see it. You know it when you see it from the chart. Is there so when you pick these companies, do you? I'm looking at this from a venture capital standpoint. Where if I was looking at a company like a very early stage company, and you go and you talk to the founder, and you expect them to, you know, kind of give them a rundown of what they have in store for their company, including a marketing plan, a hiring plan, like um, a product dispersion plan. Um, you don't always have access to that with penny stock companies. Like you might not have that. Like with a venture capital, often the founder has a lot of accountability. Mm -hmm. So how do you find those details about a company without? Okay, so this is where most of the, this is where kind of the minefield lies for this this type of trading. Uh, first of all, these founders, these CEOs, uh, these people that are going to be giving you these rundowns, in my experience, what I've found is that they're the absolute best salesman for their company, for their business model. Um, a good salesman isn't necessarily an indicator of, of potential uh, future success. They, they're they there to sell their product to you and to sell their idea to you. So yes, I do listen to their rundown and all of that stuff. Um, you have to take it with a grain of salt because that's what their job is. Their job is to sell you the stock and to sell you on the idea that what they're doing is the best thing in the world. So well, what, I look that's, what I look for that's more objective, I believe, is um, I look for stocks that are trading down a little bit. I look for stocks that have definitely expected catalysts coming up in the near future, but the stock is not caught up to that expectation. And you can see that in the chart. You can see that just by using basic stock filters. Um, you know, companies with uh, established histories of annual growth, for example, and yet the stock keeps going down. Um, companies uh, who have uh, new patents coming out, they have new orders lined up. This kind of thing, you can only get through organic research. And you're not going to get that. You're not going to get an objective account of that from the CEO ever. But if you see a major disconnect between where the company is going technically and where the stock is going, then that's an inefficiency in the market, and that's the time to buy. Do you ever think about market demand when you're looking at biotech companies? I know biotech is a huge sector to kind of isolate like what technologies are going to succeed or fail, but I know, like, are we looking at kind of more of um, digital biotech? Are we looking at, I guess I'm thinking like application-wise, is there a certain sector that you trend toward? Um, so I don't really trend towards anything, uh, not that I can really put a finger on. Um, I've done both digital and I guess you would call analog biotech companies uh, in the past. I definitely look for market demand. That's one of the first things that's mentioned to me when I'm being pitched an idea by people from one of these companies. They talk about how big the market is. You know, if they're dealing with 
something like prostate cancer, for example, which is huge. Uh, you know, early detection for prostate cancer. I actually have a company right now that's come up with software that allows to take existing blood tests, and their software processes and analyzes these blood tests way faster than it's being done right now. They get the results faster. The results are so fast, in fact, that drug companies are using their software to test the efficacy of of their experimental uh, of their experimental pharmaceuticals, and so. Um, that's just an example, but yes, absolutely, you see that the demand is there. Uh, the amount of people suffering from prostate cancer, for example, is enormous. It's one of the most significant forms of cancer suffered by men, period. So, um, not to be morbid or anything, but it's always good to see a big-name disease linked to you know, a company that's trying to come up with a new solution, especially if it's tech-based. That's well, a good thing I'd imagine too, because other big companies, um, at least I know I've worked with two biotech startups at this point, and other companies will look to acquire them if they recognize that they're meeting a demand that exists in, like, maybe they don't have the supplies to chase down one disease fully. Like, these are big, big pharmaceutical companies that are, like, dealing with a thousand different things a day. So, do you look I guess it's kind of hard to project whether or not a company is going to be acquired, but when you look at a penny stock, do you kind of get a gauge for whether that is going to be a stock that bigger companies will go after? Because I know you can see major revenue there. Yeah. um, For biotech specifically, the big pharma buyout is sort of, it's, you know, it's like the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow type of scenario. they, like I said before, they don't. Th- these are companies that don't want to wait 10 years for FDA approval. They might not be able to afford to wait 10 years for FDA approval. Um, what they can do, however, is that they can sort of let a big pharma company come and scoop them up. And for big pharma, it's like, you know, letting the unpopular kid do your homework for you. And I think it works for everybody because uh, now you have this big pharma company taking it through um, the more advanced stages of FDA approval. And you have the smaller company uh, where all the investors get what they want, which is a payout. And yes, I absolutely look for that. Uh, I think that all of these companies, they eye that exit strategy as a potential goal from from day one. Not all of these companies are hoping to go public and actually bring their product to commercialization. They want the buyout. And uh, you know, there, there are cases when this happens, it's, uh, it always makes news. It's, uh, it is kind of a dream scenario for investors, and when it comes to big-name diseases, uh, absolutely. Uh, there are billions of dollars to be made, but you can't uh, – th- these smaller early-stage companies, they're just they're, – they're inequipped, and they're unprepared to take it all the way. And so in order for everybody to benefit, which means everybody makes money and then hopefully we have a, a life-saving product on the market, it's, it's a very popular and a viable avenue. So I'm going to circle back to the FDA, um, because when we are talking about being acquired is easier for companies, often, at least in America, because, you know, then they don't have to go through FDA approval, which is a multi-million dollar process. I'm sure the numbers are far outside of what I would originally imagine. But um, do you think, at least I know that looking from the tech side and kind of looking at medicine now, that the FDA is going to be a little bit laxer on companies as we head toward deregulation under Trump. Right. Um, yeah, I've been hearing a lot about this. Uh, it's really hard to say. Um, so far, the effects of this presidency have been somewhat unpredictable, I think. Uh, most people will agree on that. Um, the FDA seems to be one of the more bureaucratic uh, organizations within the federal government. And, you know, I. I I usually am not a big fan of red tape, but in this particular case, 
Uh, I don't I don't know if a 10-year FDA approval uh, time horizon makes sense or is efficient, but I think that uh, maybe staying careful and actually being more thorough is a good thing for them. That said, there's definitely there are definitely improvements to be made with streamlining the process, and I can only hope that they do this under Trump. I I'm I like to make predictions. This is a prediction I'm not going to even attempt. Though. <laughs> I don't blame you. There's not many people that would want to make that prediction. Um, I just know that sometimes I wonder if they would do better without regulation because I've seen a lot of good companies kind of go into the ground or bankrupt themselves just funneling investor money into FDA regulation alone. So that's something that is to watch out for, I sure. guess, if you're any penny stock investor. Absolutely. Um, you know, the other the other side of the coin is a lot of litigation. So. Which is expensive. Which is even more expensive and time-consuming, so it's either one or the other. So let's kind of, I know that we didn't really talk a lot about technology. Biotech is definitely, um, I think you could talk about biotech as its own for an industry for 30, 40 minutes, um, just because it's so complex. But do you find that you see technology and, let's see, technology and medicine, you know, biotech is kind of where these two have coupled together and are surging toward the future. Are you seeing an increased interest in biotech companies because of technology? Or is, was this always an industry that people were interested in? Um, well, I mean, I definitely think that there's uh, there's a very strong correlation between, you know, growth of technology, uh, just broad spectrum, and its application to medicine. Medicine and um, I think defense tech are probably, those are the two the two sectors where the absolute cutting edge of everything is being examined. And that's probably where all the, where most of the money is going or the biggest money is going. And so, yeah, absolutely. With, you know, computers growing and processing power, uh, new innovations being made every day. We have virtual reality. We have augmented reality. Now all of this stuff, it very much dovetails with the needs of biotech for sure. Um, it's, you know, uh, our population is aging, which also means that our average life expectancy is growing. And if this is to continue along the same trajectory that it's, you know, been following for the last couple of decades, we simply need to, we need to have this, the technology continue to evolve with the same speed. Do you think that we'll be able to conquer some major diseases? I know I've talked to people that say we won't ever conquer certain diseases, like we're talking about AIDS or cancer, because there's more money in... Yeah, right, the conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yes, um, I've heard all of these theories. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know if you know the cure for cancer is being suppressed by the government or by big pharma. Uh, that sounds kind of iffy to me. Uh, I think that there's plenty of money to be made in the cure. Also, I also think that there's so much to be lost by suppressing it, especially getting caught suppressing it. Uh, that I don't know how many sane people would actually, you know, in the position of power that a CEO or anybody administrating a company of that size. I don't, don't know anybody, why would they make a decision like that? The risk seems to overwhelm any potential reward. Uh, your original question was, do I see major diseases getting uh, defeated in the, you know, the next couple of years, couple of decades? Absolutely. We are, you know, we're approaching the technological singularity, as you probably heard, if we're not there already, which means that Robots are going to keep getting smaller and smaller. Technology in, gen technology in general is kind of heading towards the molecular um, sort of, what word am I looking for? Um, we're heading towards... Uh, it's all speeding up. Yes, right. I just read an article about this. It's talking about artificial intelligence. Is that, and I wonder about this with biotechnology as well. It's like, 
Um, they talk about how if you were to take a person from the 1500s and bring them to the 1850s, they wouldn't be overwhelmed by the change. But if you were to take somebody from like the late 1850s to now, they'd be so overwhelmed they wouldn't I mean, even make it. I so, would argue that if you took somebody from the 70s and just dropped them into now, they wouldn't know what to do. What I is mean, this? yeah, what is this? What, what am I holding in my hand, and why am I staring into it all day long? Um, Yes, technology is taking over. It's uh, you know it's doubling in speed, which means it's doubling in intellect roughly every 18 months, every 24 months. Humans don't evolve that fast. So this, um, just in general, uh, the evolution of technology uh, far outpaces our physical capabilities, which means that it seems like a natural crutch for us to use for you know whatever continuing problems we have to deal with, including medical-related ones. And that'll happen for biotech. That's kind of what I was hoping you'd hear. I'd I'm, I've always kind of thought, like, you know, it seems like we've been battling with a lot of diseases, especially, like, immune diseases, like diabetes. I know there are companies out there that are trying to make bionic pancreases, um, and it seems like we've been struggling with them for, like, 10 years. But even in the past two years, I've seen major leaps. Like, I would have never have imagined when my brother, my brother has diabetes, he's diagnosed when he's five, that he'd be looking at possibly having bionic pancreas by the time he's 25. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you know, and I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the details of this, but I will bet you that 75% of the technologies that made that, you know, prototypical pancreas possible were developed in the last couple of years. That was it. You know, even if they've been working on it for the last 30 years. Right now, as we're as we're approaching this critical mass for technology, um, all of the key moments are happening right now. Uh, computers are getting smarter. They're, the breakthroughs are getting more and more frequent, and yeah, eventually I think they are going to – there's no disease that I, I think is incurable. I just – I do not believe in that. I don't think that there are any hurdles technologically that we can't overcome, you know, given enough research and uh, given enough effort. It's going to happen, and uh, it's a very exciting time right now just because the technology is starting to teach us. And so, you know, this is definitely – both investment-wise and just as a bystander, I think it's the most exciting time. Back. So, like, on your – obviously, you've been investing in penny stocks for a long time. What is the total amount now? 17? 17. 17 years? Uh, yeah, something <laughs> like that. I'm losing count of the Put years. Put so, Yeah. It's, so, like, I know that's a lot of time to be investing, and you've probably seen a wide variety of investments across that 17-year span. But do you have one that stands out to you as kind of, like, either surprised you or just was, like, so lucrative that – um, I wouldn't say one. Um, there have been there have been a number of them, you know, and I can't even off the top of my head think of like the top three. But there absolutely have been, um, you know, like huge huge steps forward. Uh, you know, right now I'm covering a company that uh, that invented a smart metal detector. You know, it can tell the difference between a watch and a bomb or a watch and a gun, and uh, and it's invisible. You know, you you walk through this thing and you don't even know that you're being scanned and you know, it's a very minor example. It's a very niche market. But again, you know, this is a tiny company, a company that's not even $40 million. And, you know, they're, they're sitting on, you know, on the threshold of, I think, you know, world-changing stuff here. That's a very small example. Um, there are many like it. Uh, the one cool thing about penny stocks, if, if that's what you insist on calling them. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, that's how people know them. But if there's one thing that really stands out about, uh, you know, this breed of, 
investment itself is that these companies tend to be super laser focused on what they're doing. It's not like Google that, you know, they're inventing, you know, the new, uh, the newest, greatest solar cell at the same time as that they're inventing a solar powered airplane at the same time as they're, you know, running the world's greatest search engine. These are companies that are working on one thing and one thing only. They're looking for one solution. Uh, they're looking for a silver bullet for a very specific problem, and that's what makes it exciting. You, you know, as an investor, you, you put money in Apple and you take it out a week later, making a couple dollars. You've made no difference whatsoever. As an investor in one of these companies, you're actually kind of feet on the ground, taking part in this company's, you know, life story, and hopefully, positive uh, benefits, you know, to bring to society in general. So I know that you're the editor of both First Call and Penny Stock Millionaire. Those are two of the services that you're right, you know, I don't know how frequently mailings go out for both of those. Every week. Every week. Yes. So <clears throat> what, give me an example of content that you would cover. Like this is kind of walk us through your thought process of when you see a company, like that would be good. And then. Okay. Um, you know, so I find a company, uh, my method for finding them uh, varies. Uh, you know, it's either, you know, I, I just filter them using stock filtration, uh, apps that are you know very basic accessible to anybody uh that usually cuts out about 99 percent of the contenders and then i go in and actually start researching what the company's doing how it's doing it uh, recent news stuff like that uh, oftentimes i also hear about companies just through my network uh, i know i know brokers i know investors um, i know fund managers these kind of people and so one way or another i get a name of a company i check it out if it's good, I recommend it to uh, one or the other file, sometimes both. And then what happens is uh, it enters, in, in, you know, it enters the coverage process. And every time there's news, I essentially just update the readers during the in, within the weekly updates, and I I give them a rundown of what's new, uh, what moves to make, uh, you know, buy more stock, hold the stock, start selling the stock, that kind of thing. It's there's not too much guesswork pretty comprehensive service though. Um, I think that's what a lot of people find daunting about microcaps is it's um, hard to know when to sell, when to sell, when to Sure, buy. yeah. And a lot of that is still my opinion too. So, uh, you know, I make the call uh, for, for Penny Stock Millionaire, which is uh, for the more mainstream users. I tend to be more conservative when it comes to buying and selling uh, with First Call, which is kind of uh, for the braver type people, uh, I push the, the envelope a little bit just to squeeze out some more gains. So I think that's all the time we have for today. Of course, we're going to have you back on the show. You have to choose more topics. Um, I know that investors that have questions about this, feel free to reach out to us and I will do my best and hopefully you will supply answers to anything that Absolutely. they're wondering about. Um, once again, I am Ali Perry. This is Investing After Hours. Thank you, Alex, for Thank coming you. on. Thanks for having me. No problem. We'll see you next week.